0: Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Brother Satyananda. Satyananda has served as a monk in the monastic order of Paramahansa Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship for over 40 years. He resides at the Hermitage at Lake Shrine, Self-Realization Fellowship's lush 10-acre spiritual retreat and meditation center in Los Angeles where he serves as minister in charge. He has inspired audiences throughout the world with his dynamic presentations on the ancient philosophy of yoga and the time-honored science of meditation. In our conversation, Satyananda and I discuss the genesis and the mission of Self Realization Fellowship. We unpack a number of its unique aims and ideals as prescribed by Yogananda, the legendary founder of Self Realization Fellowship. We explore the remarkable life of Yogananda, his legendary autobiography, and the story of how he brought yoga to the West. Satyananda describes Kriya Yoga, the specific method espoused and taught by Yogananda. And we discuss the monastic life and the modern role of self-realization fellowship. Now, before jumping into the interview, I wanted to let you know that if you're interested in guided meditation programs with wonderful teachers like Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and Michael Beckwith, well, then you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including more than a 100 courses on health, mindfulness, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. This was a wonderful, rich conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So without further delay, I present to you, Brother Satyananda. Okay, Brother Satyananda, wonderful to be with you today.
1: Thank you, Jeff.
0: So I'd love to spend our time together today introducing our listeners to the Self-Realization Fellowship. To begin with, kind of at the very, very highest level, um, what is the Self-Realization Fellowship and how would you describe its mission?
1: Well, Self-Realization Fellowship was founded by Paramahansa Yogananda, and since his time in the 1920s through 19 early 1950s, it has grown into an international religious organization. And it's a mission with a practical uh, purpose, and that is not only to share teachings that we can gain knowledge from, but... Also, to um, apply in daily life. So, there's a strong application element to mm-hmm. um, the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. And part of the mission of Self Realization Fellowship is to bring that application of uh, spiritual practice into daily life. So, we do a lot of not only um, conveying and communicating um, the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda, but also Follow up support and assistance in helping them to actually align their lifestyle with the truth that they are learning. And this for me is a very exciting part of the work that I do, is not only in helping to impart the teachings in a learning or educational way, but then taking it that further step and saying, okay, now how are we going to do this?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And being, Able to instantiate or help people to instantiate a daily spiritual practice uh, seems more needed than ever. You know, it's impossible to really discuss the Self-Realization Fellowship without delving in to the biography of of Yogananda, um, who is widely considered the father of, of yoga in the West. Now, we have a very different conception of what yoga is in modern day than, than I think um, Yogananda's vision of, of yoga was. But perhaps you could provide just a brief overview of his upbringing, his uh, discipleship, and, and his arrival in the West and establishment of Self Realization Fellowship.
1: Well, we're talking about this book. <laughs> the yes. Autobiography of a Yogi, and it has remained a best um, seller in the spiritual book category. It's now in about 50 languages. Um, Paramahansa Yogananda's autobiography is unique in that it, through his own life story, his own life narrative, he touches on many universal aspects of our life. So our inner needs, our lack of um Perhaps complete satisfaction with uh, a material life as we know it, our desire for deeper understanding and a higher sense of self, and so Yogananda goes through this personal saga of discovering um, for himself um, the truth and the ex- not only the truth but the experience of it, and then discovering his guru, Swami Sri Yukteswar, which is in our lineage. And then his training in the ashram with his guru, he shares his life there. A lot of miracles are mentioned, and it's very interesting because um, he crossed uh, paths with a number of mystical souls who were highly developed in esoteric practices, and so we get a little insight into the, you know, the deeper spirituality we might say that comes from. India and then Yogananda himself uh, receiving a uh, touch of enlightenment from his guru and he even wrote a beautiful poem called Samadhi vanished mm. uh, the veils of light and shade lifted every vapor of sorrow sailed away all dawns of fleeting joy he gets very poetic uh, and expressive about his experience of of God as expanded cosmic consciousness. And then he documents for the reader, um, his transition from, you know, a youthful life in India, to joining an ancient monastic order of sannyas, which I am also a member. And, And then coming to the United States where he actually spent the large portion of his adult life, so even though he was he was Indian by birth, he really adopted, you might say, um, America and the American people as his country and his continent. Um, and then a little bit about the founding of Self Realization Fellowship, which is the cornerstone of his mission, and a lot of interesting stories along the way. So I think the high level overview here is is that. Uh, Yogananda's narrative is kind of speaking to the reader about the universal search for expressing and discovering our highest potential and it's interesting how this kind of touches people's hearts in different ways because it becomes very a very personal journey and they it's a journey that they're often surprised that they can relate to
0: Yes, yeah, that's what I find is so unique about this piece of art. And I'm talking about the book, Autobiography of a Yogi. It is so rich with detailed story and metaphor and marvelous allegory and just the mastery of vocabulary that is leveraged throughout the book. And so it's just a marvelous book, and of course, it um, it it reemerges into prominence uh, with crests and troughs. But you know, Steve Jobs, I think, famously had five hundred of these at his memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's not the only uh, one. This has become um, kind of a, a a celebrated work for like George Harrison and the Beatles, mm-hmm, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, but. Just from a um, a context um, chronologically, time-wise, when was he born, and when did he start to bring his message to the West?
1: He was born in 1893, at the very end of, um, you know, the century, and his youth was in the early 1900s, and then he was with his guru um during you know between 1910 1920 Mm -hmm. Uh, and then he came to the united states in 1920 and he started his um, personal mission in 1920 in boston and he was there for a few years and then he felt that he needed to kind of go on the road so he did, and he ended up in Los Angeles. And when he got to Los Angeles, he said, um, this is the place where I feel like I need to um, put down roots. And so he uh, found a property uh, on Mount Washington, just overlooking Chavez Ravine, the Dodger Stadium, mm-hmm. and um, made that called that his spiritual home. And it's been our headquarters ever since for Self-Realization Fellowship. He continued to travel throughout his life so he did lecture tours and conducted initiations into discipleship for students and he traveled in europe and went back to india so he was an executive of a international organization <laughs> and yeah. at the same time he was a traveling uh teacher so he actually uh, you know, when I he passed in 1952, and he was 59 years old. Uh, I'm now 72, and when I became 59, I realized, oh, I'm the same age as my guru. What have I accomplished? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yes. Well, one thing that we've learned from Yogananda is that we shouldn't put too much stock into. Chronological linear time. So, yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, just for those listening to get a sense of the exuberance and the scale with which uh, Yogananda's message was met. I mean, I've seen um, the movie Awake, um, which has some old um, archival footage. Of Yogananda um, and photography. Uh, And we're, and he was speaking and lecturing to crowds of 5,000, 10,000 people. These weren't just uh, classrooms of, you know, Mm -hmm. 25, 30 people. Um, And he was, the response to his message was Mm -hmm. so exuberant. And he really tapped into something um, in his time. I'm not sure he could have even predicted the um the response that he got when he when he landed.
1: Well it was very interesting because you know, a central part of his uh, lecture the time he spent lecturing and teaching uh, was during the Great Depression. So it was during the nineteen thirties and while you know, the world and the country of the United States was falling apart financially and and culturally. Yogananda was traveling around giving these robust messages. You can succeed, you can be happy, you can do it. And uh, people were desperate. And so they were just really hungry for this kind of message. The timing um, of his delivery and also of the people's needs is pretty unique in history.
0: Yeah, I had never put it in that context against the backdrop of the depression, but I think that is a uh, an important substrate, um, really giving people a lot of hope in, mm-hmm. in a time that was otherwise very dismal for, for many people.
1: Well, and it was followed then by World War II. And so he had a good 15 years there of his prime. Yeah. and uh he he had these international disasters going on and uh i love to put his like you said i love to put his uh, words and teachings and some of his recorded lectures kind of in that um framework because mm. it helps me to appreciate um his accomplishment even more
0: yeah and then he spent his final years focused mostly on his writing um he, and uh and felt that he was most useful um uh leveraging his penmanship or his uh his abilities as an author. Um and then I believe he died in nineteen fifty two in 52. in a in a in relative dramatic fashion. Can it was you, very
1: dramatic.
0: Um perhaps describe that scene a bit.
1: Well, he was invited to uh, give a presentation in downtown Los Angeles at the uh, Biltmore Hotel. And uh, there were a lot of dignitaries there, international diplomats and local dignitaries. Um, And he even predicted to his uh, disciples and a few friends that um, the day of the event was going to be his last day on earth. So he made it clear that he knew exactly when he was going to depart and then on the evening of the event uh, his turn came to speak he was in a line of speakers and uh, he got up and he gave his presentation and then at the end of the presentation he recited a poem that he had written dedicated to his mother india and at the very last line after he finished repeat, you know reciting that that dedicated poem he um, gave up his life and consciousness from the body and it was at that very moment and people were just astounded i was told by someone who was there that um she said it was one of the most profound moments of her life because she said the room was filled with this dynamic energy that she had never felt before so this is um Along the lines of or in keeping with um, sages of India who have consciously given up their body at the end of life. It's not something that is you know, talked about very much, but there is that power that is gained from practiced spirituality where we can actually overcome involuntary death. And it's called a Mahasamadhi, where someone is able to consciously exit. So that's what we call uh, his passing, a Mahasamadhi. But he did it in a unique fashion. He did it. On, he did it on the stage. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, as as he did much of his work. Yeah. Hey, it's Jeff. And as an athlete, I've been told my entire life to make sure that I get enough electrolytes, but it's only recently that I have truly understood what electrolytes are and the many essential physiological functions that they fulfill. Okay. So you ready for electrolytes 101? Here we go. When essential minerals like sodium, potassium, chloride, and magnesium dissolve in a fluid, They form electrolytes, positive or negative ions needed to maintain vital bodily functions. For example, sodium ions are used by the brain to send electrical signals, hello, electrolytes, through your neurons in order to communicate with other neurons and the cells throughout your body. So electrolytes are key for brain health. Sodium also retains water and maintains proper hydration levels and fluid balance in your cells through a process called osmosis. Now calcium and potassium are needed for muscle contraction. They facilitate muscle fibers to slide together and move over each other as the muscle shortens and contracts. And magnesium is also required in this process so that the muscle fibers can relax after contraction. A magnesium is a total other beast. It plays a role in protein synthesis, sleep and blood sugar balance, and hundreds of other functions. So it's for all these reasons and more that I add element to my water. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. And guess what? No sugar. Element is sweetened with stevia, a plant-based sugar substitute that won't spike glucose levels. A 20-ounce serving of many popular sports drinks that I'm sure you know can contain 36 grams of sugar. It's absurd that those products are marketed as healthy when they contain almost as much sugar as a soda. Many listeners know that I still play competitive tennis. Before I started using Element, I was prone to fatigue and cramping during long matches due to the loss of sodium. No longer. I'm right there moving like a panther at the end of a grueling three-set match. So right now, Element is offering Commune listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com commune. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T, drinkelement.com slash commune. Element offers no questions around refunds, so try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a friend, and they will give you your money back, no questions asked. You've got nothing to lose. So go to drinkelement.com slash commune. It is documented by the local uh, mortician I believe that his body didn't decay or or showed no signs of decay for uh, an unprecedented period uh, of time and he just remained kind of placid and intact. Um, So just an uncommon soul. so I'd love to talk a little bit about the aims and ideals uh, for Self Realization Fellowship because Yogananda, in the establishment of the fellowship, was very clear in his enumeration of goals for the enterprise. So I'll hover over a couple and and get your response, and then you know if you want to call out some of the other ones, uh, by all means. But one that I found particularly interesting um, was this one. I just have to put on my glasses and read it. To reveal the complete harmony and basic oneness of original Christianity taught by Jesus Christ and original yoga as taught by Krishna, and to show that these principles of truth. Are the common scientific foundation of all true religions? So
1: it's pretty ambitious. This, <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so this non-sectarian approach to religion um, is, as you say, incredibly ambitious and you know, unique for its time, unique for any time. Um, and, you know, in fact, in many Um, Self-Realization Fellowship settings, like at Lake Shrine, um, there is a portrait of Jesus often affixed right next to Lord Krishna uh, on the altar space. So I wonder if you can describe that consilience that can be found between the teachings of Jesus and those of the Self-Realization Fellowship.
1: Well, what Paramahansa Yogananda was tapping into is um, a core or a source, unity of truth that um, is complementary no matter the time or the uh, location throughout history. So we have actually prophets of many different religions and at the Origin of that religion, there is an inspiration. A person who had a mystical insight, had an, lived a life of inspiration. And at that source of inspiration, there is common ground. Hmm. And Paramansaji wanted to tap into that. And so he said that in studying the teachings of Jesus, which he did while he was in India before he came to America, um, the words of Jesus very much aligned in spirit and in inspiration with the words of krishna from the bhagavad gita and so there arose a desire in his heart to show this um, alignment at the source of inspiration so the religions you know gradually evolved from the uh, founding prophet and they developed different rituals and different practices and they have different uh, faith language Um, which tends to be perceived as being separate. But when you trace it back to the source, um, it gets more and more common until you actually, and I know that you, Jeff, have seen books that actually compare, you know, words of Jesus, words of Buddha, words of, and you can kind of categorize them into different topics Mm -hmm. and, there are even stories uh, from the different prophets. I was telling something in a Sunday service at Lake Shrine about um, Jesus watching a poor woman putting in, you know, two copper coins when all the wealthy Jews had put in their donations in the Temple of David, and he said to his disciples, "You know, she has given more because she has given all she had." And then I told a story from the life of Buddha, uh, where according to the tradition. Uh, Buddha was given lots of wealthy gifts from merchants. And then a woman came up and gave a a mango. And he made a big deal out of it. And he said, all of you have given from your abundance, but she has given all she had. And so we see these common threads, these common teachings, and more important, the profound common inspiration. And so Yogananda's aim and ideal there is, is to Bring this out and say, we're not talking about two separate teachings, two separate concepts. We're talking about one inspiration, one revelation. And he even wrote, uh, composed um, spiritual commentary for those two scriptures the Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavan Krishna, taking the words of the verse and then also making it a very mystical commentary. And then the words of the uh, from the New Testament, and and taking those verses and breaking them down and giving a mystical insight on those, and it's very amazing because I read both scriptures, go back and forth, and I gain actually you know the same inspiration. I love them both.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I think you make a good point that behind the window dressing of the dogma and the ritual um, that there is a common experience of samadhi if you will or of integrated consciousness or a sensation that there is no delineation between the experience of what it's like to be me and the world or and source Um, and that that experience is available to anyone in any culture and it is very likely and very possible that jesus had this moment of satori this uh this samadhi uh, if you will but the context for having it was within the parentheses of the hebrew god so so then okay well th- th- this was his context for that experience and so it became sort of classified uh, within these brackets of 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 abrahamic tradition
1: well yogananda but, even yeah. gets into that jeff because he says that it's kind of all in language and the language that you're <laughs> using and the references that you're using to be able to speak to the people and so in his commentaries on the words of Jesus, Yogananda is often saying, well, Jesus is saying this, but from the higher level of inspiration from which he is speaking, um, his meaning is the same in this way. And so he's using the language of the time and the climb and the references of the people. He's using the parables that they will understand. And he's drawing from the language of the religion of the area But the intent and purpose and the meaning that he has is the same as Mm. Bhagavan Krishna or something. So we have this mystical uh, foundation.
0: So here's another one of the aims and ideals that I'd love to get your perspective on, given that you are um, part of the monastic order. Uh, so one of the aims and ideals was to encourage plain living and high thinking. So uh, I wonder <laughs> how you interpret that and uh, and what kind of resonance that might have as applied to your own life.
1: Well, one of our vows that we take as uh, as a monastic is the vow of simplicity. Um, It relates a little bit to the Christian vow of of poverty, but Yogananda said, no, I don't believe in poverty. I believe in simplicity. And um, I think we can all relate. In fact, this ties in with the, well, we might call it the COVID experience that we've all been through together. A lot of the uh, conversation that I've been having with spiritually inclined men and women is I didn't realize how complex my life had become. And um, a desire coming out of the experience the past two years to kind of simplify, that is to structure or restructure our life according to our real values. And I think this is where there becomes a separation that we're not even aware of. It sneaks up on us. And we get distracted by this and distracted by that, and we're interested in this or that. And before we know it, um, our life has become filled with all kinds of inconsequential things, and our values have been buried. And so, this past couple of years, people have taken a fresh look and asked themselves questions that are actually quite hard questions, saying, How can I rebuild my life going forward that's more? based on the the values that I hold dear. So we all think of ourselves as high-minded people, um, but our lifestyle becomes compromised. And it's not by intention. It's just by the force of environment itself. Um, but we have to be very focused. And so this aim and ideal is saying, you know, be focused about it. Put your intention into it and build a meaningful life based on your highest values and remain on track with that. And when we do, we find this harmony coming from within that just feels really rich and strong because complexity, diversity is good to a certain point because we have a lot of abilities and interests. The world is offering a broad menu that we can tap into, but we get overloaded too much information, too many opinions, too many points of view. And I'm always asking people, especially the uh, the younger generation now, um, you know, what, what do you believe? You, you know, you can tell me what others believe and you're always checking in with your peers and you, you kind of get a group sense of what direction everybody's going, but what do you believe? What, mm-hmm. what conclusions can you draw? because that's where the rubber really hits the road. So I think that, you know, plain living and high thinking is uh, bringing the uh, lifestyle and the personal daily actions up to the level of the ideals and the values and then making it operational in your daily life.
0: Hey, it's Jeff. Now, I always heard vitamin supplements are a waste of money as they just pass through your system. Expensive pee, right? Well, now I understand why and the reasons it's so hard to absorb large doses of certain nutrients through the pills, powders, and gummies at the store. Now, when you take these supplements or even consume foods, your digestive system must extract vitamins and minerals and depending on the nutrient, convert them to a form your body can use. Now, some nutrients depend on proteins to transport them into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Now, often these supplements contain such large quantities that your body doesn't have enough resources Like transporter proteins to absorb the nutrients. Since your body can't store water-soluble vitamins like C and the B family, as well as minerals like magnesium, zinc, and selenium, they wind up excreted and never reaching the cells where they are needed to support your immune system, metabolism, nervous system, and so much more now i didn't know all of this when i started taking live on labs lipospheric vitamin c i just know that if Skylar was giving them to me they must be good well it turns out that live on labs understands the difficulty of high dose nutrient absorption and they became the first dietary supplement company to use liposomal encapsulation technology to enhance nutrient absorption liposomes are double layered spheres that live on labs uses to surround, protect, and transport water-soluble vitamins and minerals into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. The liposomes are made of essential phospholipids, the same material that makes up your cells, so they easily pass into the cells and deliver the nutrients, staying behind to fortify. cell membrane. Now the Live On Labs liposome encapsulated supplement line includes vitamin C, a B vitamin complex that contains pre-methylated folate, a magnesium specifically formulated for the brain, and the master antioxidant glutathione. And guess what? Only the ingredients necessary for maximum absorption that means no sugar and no fillers no colors no artificial flavors if you don't want to know what that tastes like and trust me you probably don't make sure to follow the instructions on the package Uh, right now live on labs is offering commune listeners free sample two packs of all their liposome encapsulated supplements with any purchase this is a great way to try all six of their powerful supplements and get accustomed to their weird unique goo-like consistency just get yours at liveonlabs.com slash commune this offer is only available through my link you must go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Live on Labs has a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back, so you have nothing to lose. Go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. I think Lao Tzu wrote uh, something like, a scholar learns something every day. The man of Tao unlearns something. <laughs> um, and I've tried to uh, um, apply that logic just to my closet, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> just to simplify, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and to really let go of this notion that there's going to be some kind of external agent that's going to be able to address my own inner feelings of deficiency or or inadequacy and and so often we look outside ourselves to address these kinds of discontents Um, and I I think you're absolutely right I mean I've often referred to this period of COVID as an imposed monasticism for some of course not to the order that your uh, monastic pursuits have gone but but it is a reprioritization and in in some ways a simple um a simplification of life. And certainly I think there was a time there, I can look into my own life where, you know, I had dinner with my children every single night. I cooked, my wife and I cooked every single meal, a lot from food that we just got from our own garden. You know, it was, um I didn't get into a car for five or six weeks. Now, you know, of course, everybody's situation was very, very different. And during this time, there were people, uh, I think about doctors and nurses and first responders and people in ICU units and obviously people that had fallen sick. And the reality for many people was was very different. I think there was also an explosion of loneliness and isolation and alienation during this time. Mm -hmm. But I do agree with you that... um, it was the experience of many to simplify their lives mm-hmm. and through that simplification um, begin to focus on what made life worthwhile in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so here's another ideal that I'd like to explore with you. Another thing that I found incredibly unique um, about Yogananda and also about just the work of Self-Realization Fellowship so i'll read it here um to unite science and religion through realization of the unity of their underlying principles so to to unite science and religion this is also fascinating um, because typically faith has been the providence of religion and fact belongs to the realm of science and uh and there is a, a large wall built between them, but you know obviously yoga yoga had to be incredibly interested in science because his lifetime, just the chronicle, chronological lifetime saw some of the most significant upheavals in science uh you know I, I think about the upending of Uh, Newtonian physics and the introduction of relativity theory, and shortly thereafter, quantum theory and quantum physics, particle theory, etc. And Yogananda really tried to sort of bridge the cosmic and the empirical by teaching what he called scientific techniques for attaining direct personal experience of God. Scientific techniques. So I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit and describe some of these shared underlying principles between science and religion as you understand them?
1: Well, um, you know, on the grand scale, um, the teachings that Yogananda brings are a uh, modernized version of ancient Vedas. The Vedas in India are are a vast scripture uh, that goes back now about 10,000 years. And part of that body of scripture has to do with the uh, inner and outer universe and how it's structured and all of its layers. And when you get into that, um, it looks a lot like modern quantum. So you have your, you know, you have your biological cellular level, you have your atomic level, you have your sub subatomic particle level. Um, and then um, the scriptures take over and say beneath the subatomic quantum level, of particles, there is energy, and then there is vibration. And more subtle than vibration is consciousness. And so there are, according to these ancient teachings and Yogananda's uh, teaching, there are uh, discoveries yet to be made, but the discoveries that have already been made um, are so much in alignment with the historical teaching that it shows going in the in the same direction um, Yogananda also backs this up with his experiences in Samadhi where he talks about um, vibration and I've had this in my experience too where suddenly you can be aware of thing everything that is vibrating gently all around you you can see particles of light that are you know bubbling around you and you realize that space is alive. Mm. Um now that's both spiritual and it's scientific because um we are able to actually perceive this reality on a more subtle level and that's where this kind of thing merges where spirituality and science begins to come together in the fabric of the reality that we share um the the techniques that we practice are scientific because Yogananda made the analogy of a scientific experiment. He said a uh, experiment becomes scientific when you can perform different steps and you can arrive at the same result every time. And so different people can perform the same experiment um, and arrive at the same result. And so uh, techniques of meditation that we teach are the same way. So we can use our breath we can use our mind in terms of mantra we can use our concentration in a very specific way and success can be measured by the outcome and the outcome will be the same now for example and this will interest you i'm sure jeff is the teaching that we have about the spiritual eye so you close your eyes and when you close your eyes um all you see is darkness and so the teaching that we have and it comes from India, says if you lift your gaze and your mind and you center it right between the eyebrows, you focus it on a center there that as your eyes become steady and your mind becomes calm, you will begin to see light. And the light that forms there sometimes is usually just a white ball of light. It doesn't have its amorphous. It doesn't have any particular shape. But as you concentrate there with steadiness, It forms a ring, a golden ring of light. And as you concentrate more deeply, the center of that ring becomes blue. And then there emerges a pinpoint white five-pointed star. Now, that sounds kind of artistic, but the amazing thing is everybody can see it. So um, we have people that come to us and say, I've got a question. When I close my eyes at night and go to sleep, I see this golden ring with a blue field and a little white star. What is that? Um, you ask a child, um, when you go to sleep at night, do you see anything? And sometimes a child will say, yes, I, I see light. Um, t- describe the light to me. Oh, I see this golden ball of light and it has a dark center to it. And so um, the idea here is, is that in the right, with the right preparation and in the right state of mind, um, everybody can perceive that light, it is the same. So the teaching here is touching on a more esoteric level of a reality that we share and that science is still discovering and ancient science or ancient metaphysical science has to a great degree already uncovered um, for us to rediscover again, and that, in a sense, is what we're doing. Yogananda very uh, cleverly said, "Go into the laboratory of your mind." <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: And he said, "There, with the proper techniques, you can begin to discover um, the secrets." He calls them the secrets of the universe. Yes,
0: yeah, applying sort of a the tried and true scientific method to one's own mind of hypothesis, experimentation, observation, reasoning, modification, conclusion, um, and doing that as practice, um, which I think is fascinating. You know, I am making myself a note to um, book another podcast podcast, session to focus on one particular chapter of autobiography of a Yogi, which is chapter thirty, which is called the Law of Miracles. Um, it's too dense, I think, to unpack on this particular <laughs> in this particular episode because I want to actually get into some of the modalities and teachings that you bring to the world. but I just um, for anyone listening who's interested, in the relationship between uh, science and mysticism i really highly recommend that people go read that chapter because it really unpacks these monumental discoveries of the early 20th century relativity theory and quantum theory Mm -hmm. and how they point to the inherent dualistic and relativistic nature of the material or the phenomenal world which is which is essentially the world that yogananda would refer to as maya the mm-hmm. world of, of illusion and um and that for him for yogananda this discovery underwrote um a philosophy that there is this phenomenal world that is uh mired in polarity, uh, that is mired in opposites, and um that outside this world of location and form, uh, you know, the world that we are limited to see by just the the brack of, of our five senses, yeah. um that there is a unified consciousness And the great mystics and sages were able to realize this and tap into an ultimate reality where essentially they could dematerialize and become energy and and, and travel through linear time as energy uh, and essentially transcend the polarity of the phenomenal world uh, of location and form. It's fascinating.
1: (laughs) It's fascinating. And... Um, adding something to that uh, more than we imagine people's lives touch on this. They have inner experiences that they don't talk about. I'm a spiritual counselor with SRF as a minister. And um, people tell me things that they don't even tell their husbands and wives. (laughs) Uh, Like, you know, they had a dream and in the dream they transcended their body and they Uh, witnessed something that went on in another place, and later they confirmed it. And so, you know, we talk about, we're not talking about paranormal or all this stuff, but we're actually talking about intuitive perception. Mm -hmm. And people have intuitive perceptions that go beyond the rational mind. We have our daily life where we're perceiving through the senses, we're processing with our cognitive mind, we're making sense out of it all, we're processing it. And yet there is another form of perception. And this awakens through meditation. So, in meditation with scientific techniques, we use the techniques to go beyond the rational mind and beyond thought into a state of stillness, which then awakens uh, a new state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And we realize, oh, I have new tools. I have faculties that I didn't know that I had. And we begin to understand things in a new way. So I think that this is kind of unlocking the potential that we would always want to dream about having, but don't know how to access. And here people are accidentally, you might say, accessing it. They have a insider and intuition Um, they can't explain it they don't know how to get back to it and artists musicians people throughout history have produced phenomenal works of authorship of art of um, music and when you talk to them about their source of inspiration it's very mystical Mm. and they don't know how they got it it just came to them as an inspiration and Yogananda is saying it's always there and it's always available. And if you want more access, here's how you can have it.
0: Yeah. I mean, just, uh, to ground that in an experience that some of the listeners might have as, as yoga practitioners, um, of which many of my listeners are regular practicing yogis. You know, there is a place of flow where you have perfect awareness of your body in space and time, where every, um, what normally might present as resistance completely disappears. Um, And your sense of time, your sense of your body from a perspective of location and form uh, seems to disappear um, and there is just a complete sense of oneness or flow or connection. And, um, and I suppose, you know, when Yogananda described self-realization and, you know, I want to ask you what self-realization actually means to you, given that that's a important term in our conversation, but he described it as um, a certain kind of knowing um in a soul knowing that we are one uh in, with the omnipresence of god and and this profound knowing can be reified through practice um and and so you know maybe this is a a good time to talk about what some of those practices are i mean you know yogananda was anchored in kriya yoga Um, So that's certainly a place where we can start. But uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how we can leverage certain modalities to access
1: that sense of oneness or flow. Well, we are very much um, identified with our bodies and our physical experience and when we begin to meditate that sense of identification starts to change Uh, we have a we might call it an atman or a higher self or a soul um, a higher state of being that we can begin to access and once we do even to a very small degree at first our sense of identity begins to change. And this is actually quite profound because the identification with the body is very limited. It has a moment of birth. It has a moment of death. It has chaos in between. Um, But something that's profoundly more than that in a a higher sense um, can become a new sense of identity for us. And the more we meditate, the more we step into that and we realize, I am more than what I thought I was. And that begins to take shape for you. It's it's individual for each person, but it's also universal in its scope. The practices of Kriya Yoga specifically um, are a sequence of techniques because being able to tap into this higher self self-realization um, requires the withdrawal of uh, life energy so it is life energy that we are using to connect with the outer world through our senses so it's an energetic connection between our senses and the sensory objects. Um, for example you know you can feel the the sensation in your fingertips when you rub your fingers and that's um, you know, you can explain that in terms of its, the nervous system and so forth, but there's consciousness also there. Um, in Kriya Yoga, we withdraw that sensory awareness from the body back to the spine. Now, this happens naturally in sleep. So we go to sleep and our senses shut down, and yet we are still alive. And we are sleeping and dreaming and we awake the next morning and we had certain experiences. We were not aware of what was going on around us, um, but we have rested and we're still alive. So there is that potential to have um, life, awareness and experience uh, beyond the senses. And that's where meditation starts. It does not go into sleep. It goes beyond sleep because we are entering into a new space consciously and at will. It's not a passive thing. And as we do using Kriya Yoga, Kriya Yoga works with um, life energy, it works with breath, it works with mantra, and it works with with the mind and visualization. So we are combining our um, human tools of the mind, Um, to focus on the process of withdrawing our attention from the body and lifting it up to a higher state of perception. Um, How am I doing? Excellent. So,
0: um, and this is one of the hardest, trickiest components, I think, around the conversation. Uh, for Kriya Yoga because it is, you know, Yogananda himself is very vague in some ways about the specific modalities and techniques because they have traditionally been taught exclusively through this kind of guru-disciple relationship. Mm -hmm. And so even in the autobiography of, of the yogi, you know, he there is a chapter about Kriya Yoga. He yeah, says, um, I
1: can't disclose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, it reminds me of the Tao uh, where Lao Tzu wrote, writes, those who say uh, do not know and those who know do not say. Um, of course, then he went on to write a book about it. But, um, but uh, he, he does describe a certain kind of pranayama or, or breathing technique. Um, that perhaps you can explain to me a little bit without um, violating any codes, Um, where he calls it disjoining the course of inspiration and expiration. Now, the the way that I understood this or have tried to understand it is that there is a certain kind of breathing technique in which your exhale and your inhale Merge or yoke as one, and that the ability to do this releases prana or life force, kind of from the heart. Um, now, this is a very—I'm uh, uh, revealing how much of an acolyte I, I am here in this regard. But maybe you could talk a little bit about the breathing technique and and what he might mean by this particular pranayama?
1: Well, the the common, I think the common definition for pranayama in the West is uh, breath, breath work. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different forms that that takes. Uh, as I was saying before, Kriya Yoga is more than just breath. So breath is yep. one component of the technique. Um, the breathing itself is a regulated breathing. And it involves mantra. So you are putting uh, the flow of breath together with the mantra. It's a mental mantra. But mm-hmm. mental mantra generates vibration. And so the combination of the, the regulated breath, and in this sense, the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita verse says the same thing, offering the inhaling breath to the exhaling breath and offering the exhaling breath to the inhaling breath, breath becomes transmuted Mm -hmm. into consciousness. Mm. Or breath becomes mind is the common English translation. And so we have this transmutation process that's taking place as we are performing a gentle regulated breath, offering the inhaling and exhaling breath to each other. So it's a continuous process that is impregnated with mantra and also involves visualization. So you are guiding uh, breath and life force as you are performing. And it is really the combination of all three working together in concert that achieves the optimum effect of withdrawing life force um, from the senses and the nerves back to the spine and um yoganandaji gives a very interesting spiritual law he says consciousness follows life force so wherever there is life energy there is your consciousness and back to the simple you know fingertip analogy when you are putting your fingers together and pinching your fingers um, there's energy there and you can feel it and you are aware of it so your consciousness is in your fingers. And and so the meditation process is withdrawing that consciousness away from the flesh, back into the more subtle realms of the the spine, and then lifting it up. So there's a transmutation of life energy and consciousness that is achieved by a sequential application of uh, regulated gentle breath, offering of the breath, impregnated with subtle mantra, and um, directed by the mind through visualization. Mm -hmm. Am I answering the question? Yeah, so
0: when you're leading a guided meditation, for example, Mm -hmm. are you um, combining those three elements in, in your guidance in terms of offering a mental mantra, A specific kind of drishti, let's say, uh, or gaze point, even if that's just in your mind, um, and and a breath pattern?
1: Well, we have different levels of practitioners, even within our own spiritual community. And everybody is practicing uh, techniques that are taught by Yogananda. He offers so much, it's incredible. But the basic what we call sadhana, or daily practice, um, will be the same and leading in the same direction. So not everyone is practicing all of the techniques that we offer, but they're certainly practicing some of the sequence. The guidance that I give in group meditations um, usually is based around the fundamentals of proper posture, guiding us into a state of relaxed stillness of the body because that needs to be achieved first. You can't take your stress into meditation and get results. Um, and then calming the mind. So there can be some instruction on quieting the mind. Um, and then those who practice Kriya Yoga, like you've observed, it's a, it's a technique that's given in initiation of discipleship, according to the you know ancient adjuncts of yoga science and the real reason behind that is very similar to um, you know if we try to understand quantum theory without really pursuing um, a dedicated path, then we will get way ahead of ourselves and we'll be reading things that we really have no comprehension of. And
0: it happens to me all the time. <laughs> it happens to me
1: too. And, I, you know, you struggle with these things. You go, oh, well, I've got to go back and study something else first so that I can get those concepts down to even be able to understand the language and how right. the language is structuring the concepts. And so what yoga has done is it set up the, the learning curve. It kind of establishes the learning curve. And it says, you know, really before you can get, you know, you know, the the maximum potential out of your practice at this level, you have to kind of start here and work up. Hmm. So um, we follow those precepts from ancient times because that's what Yogananda has set down. And the thing is, is that it's open for everybody, but who wants to do the work? (laughs) And so we find out. Yes, we do. Yeah, we find out. And
0: and it's a process. I mean... mm -hmm. uh, What is it? Yoga Chitta Vritti Naroda (laughs) from Patanjali. It's really yoga is this continual, slow, progressive silencing of the mind.
1: Stilling the Chitta.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: And so there's Uh, something, you know, there's something at every level. And uh, when I first entered in, I thought, oh, well, self realization in a few years, I'll I'll have it. And uh, I've seen that it's a journey. But it's a journey of amazing discovery. So mm. I haven't reached my ultimate goal, my ultimate potential yet, but the um, the journey is just way more amazing than I ever imagined. So there's no disappointment there.
0: No, I, I think that as it said, um, the bigger the fire that you create, the more darkness is revealed. Um, mm. And so uh, I think there's great humility, too, in, in in understanding how much vastness lays beyond and how much potential there is to walk into. I mean, and that's what makes it exciting and, mm-hmm. and, that's right. and gives us curiosity um, mm-hmm. to be forever on the path and never to see life as a product or some form of terminus.
1: Well, the interesting thing here, Jeff, is is that Yogananda says in a very promising way that this is also the same with the goal. He says, why be happy with happiness that, you know, gets worn out after a while and you get bored? Uh, Why not seek a happiness that is ever new and has no end to it? Mm. And then he said, this is the joy of God. He said, the destination that you are headed toward is a joy so great, you can't conceive of it now, and it's ever-changing, it's ever-new. And he calls this Ananda, or bliss. So my name, Satyananda, in Sanskrit, is um, bliss through truth. And so the endless, ever-new bliss that comes from the conscious discoveries of new dimensions of truth. So the goal that we're seeking is not a fixed destination it is a um, a continual expansion into what yogananda calls ever new joy and he has poems and songs that he's composed about that and i find this kind of inspiration very very beautiful
0: yeah you used a word that intuited a question that i had um Use the word "God," which is a word that is commonly used within Self Realization Fellowship, and and Yogananda used it. Now, of course, you know, most of us in the West associate that word with an a- an Abrahamic, sort of bearded, patriarchal, grandfatherly mm-hmm. fellow with a uh, with a moral abacus as mm-hmm. uh, someone that we might <laughs> fear. Given mm-hmm. his unbridled power to determine our eternal fate. But my the sense power is that of
1: judgment, yeah. You know.
0: Yes, indeed. I, I sense that you um leverage that word in a slightly different way. What do you mean when you use the word God?
1: Well, that that was a question that had to be answered at the very beginning of my search. And uh, I was seeking everywhere um, and finally landed on this little book of Yogananda called The Science of Religion. Which is right in the theme of our conversation today. And as I was reading this little book, um, Yogananda makes a made a direct connection for me. He said, Everyone is seeking happiness. It doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal, you're seeking happiness. That's what your underlying motive is. The greatest happiness is bliss that comes from within it's a joy that has no identification with outer sources it just comes from within you and it's a very powerful flow of joy and that joy is god and so when people ask me how do you define god i said that's easy one word bliss Hmm. because when i made that connection um everyone's seeking happiness greatest happiness is inner bliss and that is God, I said, that's what I want. And I think it was for the first time in my life that I recognized a goal worth striving for. And that was really at the foundation of my choice of a monastic life because I knew it was going to be difficult any way I chose. (laughs) (laughs) And so I said, well, let me make the highest investment I can. It was very pragmatic at that time. (laughs) And looking back, I'm actually very happy with my choice. Um, It hasn't been easy, and it's not easy, but it is rewarding in ways that are personal for me, and it helps me to assist and support others. So God is joy, and the proof of God is the joy that you feel within, and this is the sum and substance of our meditative practice. So, people say, I don't know if I'm getting anywhere with my meditation, brother. And I say, Well, at the end of your meditation, when you're sitting just quietly, what do you feel? And almost invariably, they say, Oh, there's just kind of this wonderful feeling. I said, You need to concentrate on that and build on that because that is God's divinity, God's sacredness right within you. And one of the great metaphysical laws is whatever you concentrate on, will expand. So concentrate on that feeling, no matter how small it seems to be, it will begin to expand until it becomes all-consuming. So we have the methodology, and we also have the communion. And the communion is not an absence of life, it is a fullness of joy that is a result of our practice.
0: And do you see that as your primary role, both within uh, Self-Realization Fellowship, but also within the greater context of your life, to help people find joy?
1: That's a wonderful way to put it. Um, I would say yes, absolutely. Um, We know the journey that people are on from uh, escaping pain to seeking joy. And I'm happily on the further end of that spectrum. People have already realized that living life to escape pain (laughs) is not enough. And so they are searching for a way to seek joy. Um, It's wonderful for me to be able to say there is hope. There is joy that you can point yourself toward. You can forget the past. You don't have to feel guilty or ashamed. You don't have to make up for wrongs that were never in your control anyway. You can begin to simply strive for something that's total wellness within you. And as you begin to develop that within yourself, you will be building gifts that you can share with others. So it is a great joy for me to be able to orient people in this way and to reaffirm their steps in that direction and to feel that I'm assisting Yogananda in some way. I like to say that I help um, seekers become students and students to become disciples and disciples to become better disciples.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's yeah. my little world, you know.
0: Yes, yeah. Um, I was speaking with a brilliant author and uh, just a brilliant man. Gabor Mate is his name. Uh, He does a lot of work around trauma. Um, And uh, he was sort of describing the process of what he calls alienation or disassociation when people go through a trauma inducing event and there, there's so much of it right now with um, abuse and loneliness and neglect Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, in the absence of being able to, you know, fight or fly that the other um, tendency is to just press down, to repress and disassociate. Mm -hmm. And so we're, disassociated with parts of ourselves so then we become alienated from Mm ourselves. and in our search for connection to relieve that alienation we look outward for inappropriate substitutes to be at one with God with bliss with ourselves Mm -hmm. and so unfortunately so many of us turn to alcohol or drugs or food or shopping or pornography or Mm -hmm. Instagram or whatever, you know, you can just go down the line.
1: Endless substitutes.
0: That's right. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that you're helping people reassociate or remember themselves. Mm -hmm. And God, I just can't imagine a a more worthwhile thing to do.
1: Well, thank you. I I feel blessed and privileged to be able to be on that side of the discovery spectrum. Because by the time people come, uh, they're seeking happiness and they're hoping that they can find it. They're not always sure. They're not always knowing. But I help to feed that hope. And I get to be sometimes a part of their joy when they do discover it. Mm, yeah. Uh
0: Just in conclusion, I'd love for you just to talk a tiny bit about where you live and just the extraordinary place that Lake Shrine is. Because um, I also want to encourage anyone listening who might be planning a visit to Los Angeles to come and discover this absolutely marvelous and and sacred property.
1: Yes, it's um, a unique sanctuary. Paramahansa Yogananda uh, founded it uh, in 1950 uh, and he had in mind a beautiful uh, sanctuary where people could get away from the metro experience and that's the unique thing of Lake Shrine is, is it it's the sanctuary of natural peace but there's also a uh, vibration presence there and yet it's uh, literally surrounded by Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Yeah. And it's only minutes away from downtown Santa Monica, but people come and um, you see the stress on their faces when they arrive, uh, and then they spend a, an hour just kind of in reflection and what, what I call contemplative activity. And by the time they leave, they have this wonderful smile on their face. And so the the purpose here is is that anyone from Any walk of life, whether you believe in God or not, just come to experience the reprieve and the refreshment of stepping outside your daily life and you're outside your role. And just, um, we just say, take a walk around the lake. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are benches there that people can sit and they can contemplate. As sages have for millenniums, uh, the calm body of water is well known for its a soothing effect, and we find people just sitting there looking, and then, you know, at first the phone's out, and then the phone goes away, and then they're yeah. smiling, and then they're closing their eyes, and you can see them going through the steps of <laughs> yeah. uh, r- relaxing, relaxing into the peace that they're feeling, the freedom, hmm. and um, so the site is interesting as a meditation garden, as a temple uh, with regular services and meditations now. Uh, We have a retreat that is in the process of reopening again. And we have an ashram, a monastery where I live and a few of my brother monks that support the work of the site. We are under the umbrella of Self-Realization Fellowship. And uh, it's a wonderful place to come. And it's by advance reservation. So just go to lakeshrine.org and reserve for the next week. It's really easy to get a reservation and it's free so there's no charge
0: and there's a wonderful host um, thank you <laughs> and, and I, I guess it's worth mentioning that I believe um, Mahatma Gandhi's ashes or some portion of his ashes are right. housed there in a sarcophagus um, given his relationship with Yogananda so there's, uh, there's that very interesting mm-hmm. side note to it as well Brother Satyananda, thank you so much um, again for all of your work and for your time today, and, uh, and I hope we can speak again.
1: Wonderful. Well, you've been a wonderful host, Jeff. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Brother Satyananda. To learn more about Self-Realization Fellowship, go to yogananda.org. And if you're in Los Angeles, I highly recommend that you visit Lake Shrine. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you know how much work goes into the creation of this project and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for 15 minutes on ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune, you'll get access to more than a hundred courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. And of course. Feel free to reach out to me directly at any time with comments or questions at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every email that comes in. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week after week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow. And I am here for you. Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood that's why inside tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength speed recovery and optimize your health for the long haul created by leading scientists in aging genetics and biometrics inside tracker analyzes your blood your dna and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash DRG.